Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. In this episode, you'll hear from journalist and writer Natasha Lunn. One person I asked, why are you interested in talking about love? And he said, is love separate from anything else? And it really made me think about that. Like, yes, I'm asking people about love. So many different things are contained within that one word. Natasha started her Conversations on Love email newsletter in 2017 after interviewing people as a journalist and discovering their conversations would invariably delve into relationships, love and life. Her book of the same name published last summer is now a Sunday Times bestseller. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up, and this is Natasha Lunn. Natasha, thank you so much and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So how did you become interested in love and in particular in having conversations on love? You know, were people keen to contribute? We all have our story, our own story to tell about love after all, but it's quite a personal area. Yes. I mean, it's probably um, the people I'm approaching a lot of the time, writers, psychotherapists, people who've done work in this area. So I think that they are just as curious as I am about it. So there's definitely something in me choosing the people who I approach. But I have found, you know, when I first started this project, somebody did say to me when I was at an event, they were like, oh, when you run out of topics after a year, you know, won't the same questions and the same answers keep coming up? Um, Which I thought was funny because we wouldn't say that about most other subjects. But I have found the opposite to be true, that the more you ask people about this topic, the bigger it becomes. And maybe, certainly in some cases, I wonder um, if an author is promoting their book and they get asked a lot of the same questions by kind of going in on this one topic in lots of detail. I wonder if sometimes they're being asked things that they haven't been asked before. And You know, I think we all love love, don't we? It's funny, one person I asked who edits the New York Times modern love section, I asked him, why are you interested in talking about love? And he said, is love separate from anything else? And it really made me think about that. Like, yes, I'm asking people about love, but I'm also asking them about their purpose in life, work, loss, domestic life, their sense of self. So many different things are contained within that one word. And I think you'd struggle to find somebody who's not interested in that. Many of our listeners are parents and carers. Let's start by talking about parental love, shall we? So what learnings and insights can you share about how parental love changes you? I'm so glad that I've been doing this project because I started before I became a parent. And I would say that there's so many conversations I've had that have completely transformed the way I try, I will say, try to parent. And the first one, I guess, is something... Philippa Perry told me, if we praise children only when they're trying to get our attention or or acting differently to how they usually do, they learn that perhaps love is conditional on them behaving a certain way. And then they can kind of um, put on this sort of shiny shell, this sort of a performance. And they learn that that is how they get love by being good, in inverted commas, um, 
or, or really like learning from a very young age to perform, to get love. Understanding that has changed everything about the way I parent because it just means that all the time I'm trying to just allow Joni, my daughter, to be herself and not to be scared maybe if she acts in a certain way and not to, I guess, suppress her emotions. Uh, the Philippa Perry chapter I found fascinating was um, that we need to understand how our childhood shapes our adult relationships because obviously that will have a huge impact on how we parent. Mm. I think sometimes, you know, we, we're not there. Well, we're, we're there, but we're not kind of watching it on a film. We don't know everything that happens. Like, I think we all know that our childhood shapes our present the way we are in relationships. But I think often that stuff doesn't necessarily come up until you become a parent and you feel yourself acting in a certain way. You think, where has that come from? And then something has really helped me is um, I interviewed a writer called Emily Rapp Black and she lost her son to Tay-Sachs disease. It was very rare. She knew that he was going to die as she was parenting him when he was very young as a toddler baby. And she said, that really freed her from what she calls like the parenting Olympics, where everything we do about parenting is thinking, oh, how are they going to be in the future? Are they going to get into this school? Are they going to be on the swim team? Are they going to find a good partner because they've learned to behave really well or all this stuff? She had no choice other than to be present in those moments. And she has a daughter now. And she said that has completely transformed the way she, you, she just doesn't compete with other parents and she doesn't care. She just knows that she's so lucky that her daughter is alive. And she kind of pointed out, I think, if we don't accept ourselves, sometimes we get too worried about what our kids' successes or failures say about us. You know, we just need to get our own ego out of it, I think. Well, there is a certain amount of narcissism, isn't there, kind of caught up in that parental love. Your, your child becomes your everything in the centre of your world. And that has got to surely reflect on us as well as parents. Well, I also think it's just our own insecurities and we are scared of passing on the things that I feel I have failed at. You know, we just have to accept ourselves so that we're not trying to live out things through them or trying to correct mistakes through them. Mm. So on, on that topic around that area, how do we retain that really important sense of self when we're raising our children and coming to terms with the force of our love for them? It's, this one is so interesting because I certainly have thought about not losing myself for a long time in romantic relationships because I did, like a lot of um, teenagers, but maybe also 20-somethings, lost myself in a romantic relationship and was just not honest about myself and didn't really ask for what I needed. But we don't talk as often about that in parenting. We sort of fetishize giving up your whole self for your baby or your child. But I don't think that that is a helpful way to parent. And actually, there was a war correspondent I interviewed called Janine Giovanni, and she described it as like your core in Pilates, your self-love, your sense of self. You have to keep training yourself not to lose that core. And I think when you lose that sense of self, then perhaps it becomes easy, what we we're talking about before, to load all your expectations to happiness onto your kids, which is just so unfair, I think. Oh yeah, completely. Let's go back to what you were saying about, you know, losing your sense of self in a relationship in your early twenties when you have that incredible intensity. The other end of that spectrum is probably when you have had children with the same person that you've been with for a number of years and you are knackered. And what about the impact of becoming a parent on the love that you have for your partner? I mean, how do you sustain that love? There's a really interesting chapter in your book about it, isn't there? Mm. I'm now 
come to accept that there are going to be periods in all of our lives where certain forms of love are easier and certain forms of love are difficult. For example, in my 20s, friendship felt very easy because we're, we have so much time and we see each other, we share experiences. That was very easy and, and romantic love felt more difficult for me. Now, certainly I am at the time when love and motherhood feels very easy almost because there's no choice. It's so vast and it's so physical. Yet romantic love and friendship have become the areas where I need to be more conscious in them. You know, obviously that's not unusual. And for me, I think it's about accepting that it's just not something that's going to tick along the romantic relationship. There's a line that um, Esther Perel said to me that I remember all the time when trying to sustain romantic love as a parent. If you tell me you love your partner, my next question is, how do you demonstrate it? So it's it's not enough whilst you're bringing up a kid or, or whatever to just know that you love your partner. Like my husband, we are in a bit of a brutal, um, you know, just feels like everything's chaotic and baby's been sick and we haven't slept and the house is a mess. And he just left me a note on the kitchen counter, tiny, tiny thing, but it just trips you out of your, um, going through the motions of your relationship without being active or present in it. Saying the thing, oh, it's really sad. We haven't been able to have that time together. We just voice it all the time. We say, oh, we're both drowning and and we want to be there for each other, but we're not. Just acknowledging almost maybe that you're in a period where it's tricky. Having that Esther Perel line in my mind has been really helpful. Like, how am I going to demonstrate love? And it is amazing, isn't it? The, The way that those small things can just change the course of how you are with each other that day. Absolutely. I mean, another thing that I found really interesting in the Conversations on Love book was the chapter with Emily Nagoski talking about sex specifically and how in society we place huge value on spontaneous desire as being indicative of a successful, stable relationship. But actually, as you say, it is the small day-to-day gestures that you can make to show somebody that you love them and that intimacy is still there. With that, it wasn't even the small gestures, it was just more reframing. There are many articles and there are many um, people talking about, you know, how do you maintain desire in your relationship and are you attracted to that person? And do you feel like you want sex? How many times a week are you having sex? And Emily just took all that off the table and, and said, the fact that you don't instantaneously want sex is not a reflection of your relationship or how strong your connection is. Actually, she said, sometimes when we feel that like impulsive desire to have sex, it's because the relationship feels unstable and we're we're trying to repair the attachment. So, you know, when you're younger and you don't know where you stand with someone, but you're just so sexually attracted to them. She said, that's just you trying to repair the attachment that you don't feel you have. So, of course, then when we feel really secure, you don't have that kind of panicked need to repair it. And actually, she just said, responsive desire. So basically feeling aroused once you start erotic stimulation in any way is completely normal. And once you understand that, you think, right, well, I'm going to have to start it to want it. The thing I write about in the book is I realized that um, through sort of having to have sex when trying to conceive and because it wasn't working, we just had to kind of keep putting in our diary and keep doing it again and again. And we would think, oh God, not again. But then it surprised me how often I would start to enjoy the sex whilst I was having it, even if 10 minutes before I'd been like, it's the last thing I want to do. So I think once you sort of don't judge your sex life on how much you spontaneously want it, 
it, it really can change how much you sort of enjoy sex and are more relaxed about it. I am sure that that will resonate with many, many tired parents and couples who are listening. But And I would say the other thing, Emily's work is amazing. She wrote a book called Come As You Are, and she's just a brilliant uh, person to, to go to on sex. She basically says the biggest kind of um, thing that affects our sex life is putting pressure on ourselves. In each episode of Race Her Up, we hear from a member of our GDSD family, giving their perspective on the matter at hand. Here is Sophia Potter, assistant head at Streatham and Clapham High School. At Streatham and Clapham High School, we pride ourselves on being a family school, a community where every individual is valued regardless of who they are and what their lived experience has been. We work hard to promote kind, considerate and tolerant interactions, aware that none of us have all the answers. While teachers may be older and hopefully a little wiser, our discussions with pupils are undertaken through a lens of compassionate empathy. To view the pupil-teacher relationship as a top-down would be to miss the incredible kindness and maturity we see in so many of our pupils every day. The sense of kinship and support and protection they so often show to one another needs to be at the forefront of our interactions with them. So it's important to approach each group discussion or private conversation with open hearts and minds. For girls in particular, this is so important when they embark on their first romantic relationships. If their experience in their early filial relationships is all about external validation, they will not be protected against possible toxic relationships in which they are open to manipulation and emotional abuse by being overly reliant on the external validation they get from a friend or a partner. We must help them guard against the dangerous sense that compliance is the way to be liked. If we pay attention to our pupils with love and see them as the incredibly multifaceted individuals that they are, we then have the chance to address problems at an early stage, as well as identify areas of interest and talent that we can help guide and shape into incredibly fulfilling passions for years to come. Okay, let's move on to friendship. Talk to us about how friendships and this platonic kind of love evolve throughout our lives. It was Alan de Botta who pointed out to me, like, we've put friendship lower down in, in much of culture and film. And I mean, he was sort of talking about moments through history when actually friendship was seen as the ideal and it was above romantic love and more important. Um, and certainly in the people I've interviewed, particularly like the older guests have really come back to that and realized that it's vital form of love, like as much as romantic love. And sometimes it needs to come bef first before your kid and it needs to come before your partner, because if it's the thing that always gets pushed aside, then it's very difficult to sustain it. But where I was coming from, particularly in the book, was just looking at how it can be difficult after you've had a period in your youth when you're all doing things on the same time scale, like you kind of graduate at the same time, you go to school at the same time, you take A-levels at the same time, maybe you leave your hometown at the same time. And then suddenly in adulthood, you're doing things at very different stages. You, you lead very different lives. And I was looking at how you can sustain a friendship through those phases. It's a combination of sometimes allowing the distance and not trying to force your friendship into the old mold of it. You know, when, when I was struggling to get pregnant, other friends had kids. I found that 
really difficult and and also was mourning a version of the friendship which had perhaps passed and thinking well they're they're kind of spending time with people who have kids and we don't have that in common anymore but I just learned that's just a natural you know the friendships do really work in seasons and nothing is constant. Did you speak to anybody um, in your research about the the intensity of female friendships in particular? Girls are are known for better or for worse for these kind of quite intense and at sometimes quite difficult friendships in their early years and their teenage years and then you have the trope of the, the mums who meet at the school gates and become real clans there is a real loyalty between women um, as you get older and as you kind of stick by each other through having babies, through kids getting a bit older, through the tricky teenage years, through marriage breakdowns, etc. Did you um, speak to anybody who gave you any insights about that? Yes. We were talking specifically about envy in friendships and how that can be um, really difficult. And also the first time that maybe we stop being honest with our friends, whether somebody has great career success and the other person doesn't, or somebody has a baby and someone is unable to and finds that really difficult. But she actually showed me that those moments are opportunities for us to be really vulnerable with each other and say, I'm struggling to get pregnant. It's really difficult for me to see you with your baby or I'm feeling real lack of self-esteem in my career and I'm so happy for you, but it's really difficult for me to see that. Um, And that is how we retain friendships in those moments. And it is really difficult. I think to be on either end, you know, she was also saying it's difficult to be the person who's on the receiving end of the envy. And in that case, you just really need to acknowledge your luck and say, I I know how lucky I am. Yeah. She showed me that retaining friendship is really about just keep trying to find ways to be vulnerable with each other again and again. It can get harder and harder to be honest. I think all of love is about revisiting your vulnerability and then having the courage to to share it with another person. You know, there is this sort of idea of like the saintly mother or or you can kind of feel that you have to live up to a certain version of what motherhood should be. Um, And actually it's when friends and women are able to be really honest about their difficulties within that, that it can be a really deep area of connection. You know, I certainly know that in my NCT, it's like as soon as somebody says, God, I'm bored of playing with my kid. I'm just today, I'm like, I can't find it so boring. Somebody else says, oh my God, I'm so glad because I was thinking I was a terrible person for being so bored. I think if you look at the success of things like Motherland and the um, Hurrah for Gin Instagram and, and people like Mother Pucker, I think their honesty is something that really has been embraced. Yes, I love Motherland. I have, I kind of don't like follow loads and loads of mums on Instagram. Like Diana was saying, it's been amazing actually having those friendships um, and finding that like really, really truthful place with each other. It's just a beautiful um, form of love and, and trust. And I think that there's great capacity for friendship in those moments. Of course. One, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned um, in your book, which I absolutely loved, was your chapter on your 30th birthday party, where you said that you felt that the room was full of romantic love, despite being surrounded by your friends. I think it was my um, parents thought I was so hopeless in love. They were like, she's never going to get married, so we'll make this like a wedding. You know, they were like <laughs> tying balloons. Like, I think that my mom's been like desperate to plan a wedding and she was like, this is my only opportunity. Um, it was just, yeah, romance and... I had this idea that I had to meet someone, you know, now it sounds ridiculous to say I had to meet someone by the time I was 30. But when I was young, I did feel that way. When it didn't happen, as I was approaching that milestone, I just felt a little sad. I thought, oh, I always wanted to be sat 
with somebody at my 30th birthday. You know, we have these stupid uh, milestones and ideas. And then when I got there, I was thinking, God, thank God I didn't bring some terrible guy I happened to be dating that month um, into this room of people who I've known for years and years and I love and and who all who knew all the different versions of me and and it wasn't just that but it was realizing that I had quite an egotistical view of love where I was just looking for someone to love me um and that was when I you know looked around and just thought oh I get to give love to all these people and maybe I need to look outwards a little more rather than just looking inwards um and I've certainly learned since then that giving love is just as rewarding than receiving love. We don't talk about that as often, I don't think. Obviously, the unavoidable truth is that love comes hand in hand with loss. Um, And there were some really heartbreaking stories of um, lost love in your book. So there was Greg Wise and Justine Piccadilly talking about losing their sisters, um, Ariel Levy on losing her son. And it was almost unbearable to read about. And I imagine very difficult to talk about, uh, given your own experiences of loss. I didn't find it difficult to talk about. I mean, when I first set off on the project, I didn't see that I would be asking people about loss. And it really emerged in this organic way, um, just understanding that we couldn't really separate love from loss. And, you know, on a very basic, obvious level, if we choose to love anyone, you know, there's going to be a time when my husband or I is going to lose the other. It's true, isn't it? We live with it, but we defer this knowledge so that we can function every day. Yeah. And I think, of course, we can't walk around um, thinking about death every day. But I do think that maybe being less afraid of that idea can help us to be a little bit more present. I I say this because from doing conversations on love, I think I'm just much more aware of the fragility of love or, or how little time we have really. And you know, sometimes I will still make all the same mistakes and get annoyed with my partner about this and he'll get annoyed with me because I'm terrible at stacking the dishwasher. I'm not um, by any means great at this all the time, but I do just have a little more of, does this really matter? Like I interviewed someone recently, an author, and she she talked about it. Like we're all walking on glass every now and again, you look down and you remember. And I just think that maybe if we remember a little bit more, we will um, just not overlook people or not get too stressed by things that don't really matter. You've spoken to many, many people about the theme of love. So author Candice Carty-Williams, you mentioned uh, Esther Perel already, writer Dolly Alderton, scientist Emily Nagoski, writer Lem Cisse. Can I put you on the spot and ask if you have a a favourite or a standout conversation that you could share with us? Well, I think um, the way I gravitate towards them is the way I hope that people will. It's like sort of whatever is going on in my life in that particular moment, I'm drawn to that conversation. At the moment, the Diana Evers conversation on parenthood, and as we were speaking about retaining your sense of self, appreciating the beauty in parenthood, but also not losing yourself in it is a conversation that I really value. And and also Lucy Kalanithi, which is the last conversation in the book. And she is speaking about her husband dying and bringing up her daughter. And it just, um, it just makes me feel so hopeful about what humans are capable of, how she's continuing to have a relationship with him and bringing the love that they had into her life now with such hope and with such courage. It just restores my faith 
in yeah what, what humans are capable of. You said at the beginning, you know, love perpetuates itself, that we've always got something different to say about love. Are you continuing to speak to people? Can we expect a volume two of conversations on love? Oh, well, I'm continuing to speak to people in the newsletter. So that's ongoing every, like twice a month. Um, so I've been doing lots of interviews on that and I've got big plans for that next year, but not not at the moment. And I will say, um, I kind of want to do what I have written about, which is to pay more attention to the people I love in my life at the moment. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot about people say, what's next in your work? What's next? And what's next for me is putting more effort into love and not being so busy with work that I don't have time for people that I care about. You reference lots of different lessons that you seem to have learned and the small gestures that you can make every day with your partner. Any kind of last thoughts or best advice that you can share with us? Just um, how much self-regulation is required in a relationship. And I interviewed a relationship coach, Susan Quilliam, about this. And it's really just like I call it catching yourself all the time. Like I'll give you an example. It's like the other day I had loads of work to do in the evening. My husband was like running late. I've been doing the childcare on my own. I was just stressed. And when he told me it was late, I was just like, oh, I was so pissed off, like resenting him. And when he came in, because of the interview, I just caught myself and I remembered that's not intentional, him being late. And actually, I just said to him, I was like, I'm feeling really resentful that you're late because I'm so busy and I'm so stressed. And he said, I'm feeling really sad that I didn't get home in time to see Joni. And just that thing of understanding each other's perspectives on it, rather than me just snapping and not telling him, and rather than me not trying to understand what it must be like for him. We're just coming at it through like two people being snappy and angry at each other with our own grievances. And just by voicing it and and me kind of just catching myself before I snap, we then start to understand the other person's perspective. And it wasn't really easy for either of us. And we're sort of in it together rather than on opposite sides of it. But then I think bigger lesson overall is just that I went into this project hoping to learn these like magic answers, which mean I'd be a great friend and a great wife and a great mother and daughter. And now I just am much more comfortable with the fact that there's always going to be periods of disconnection and difficulty and frustration in love. And actually love isn't what you reach when those things are fixed. Love is the way you choose to keep reaching each other in those moments. So the very moments that I was scared of are really the moments that contain love themselves. And um, that's made me much more relaxed about the process. What a brilliant note so much to leave it. Thank you so much, Natasha. This has been such a brilliant conversation. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Cathy. And Conversations on Love by Natasha Lunn is available to buy now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Kathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Race Her Up from the GDST when I'll be joined by singer, writer, activist and educator Grace Barrett on how to be an anti-racism ally. And so I remember being about four years old and becoming aware that I look different to everybody around me. My dad looks different to me because he's black and my mum looks different to me because she's white. I was probably about six or seven years old when I first saw somebody that looked like me and 
that person was Scary Spice. <laughs> I'll see you then. 